We'll hear argument next in case 06-1005, United States versus Santos. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Seventh Circuit has seriously misconstrued the federal money laundering statute by interpreting the term proceeds to mean profits. The statute prohibits the laundering of all the gross receipts of a crime, not just its profits. The primary meaning of proceeds is gross receipts, and the statutory context makes clear that's the meaning Congress intended here. The statute is structured to prevent criminals from using the fruits of their crimes to promote or to conceal their illegal activities. But a profits definition of proceeds would constrict the statute in ways that can't be squared with that uh, statutory objective. Because the word proceeds appears in the introductory section of the statute, those kinds of restrictions would apply to both concealment and promotion cases. For example, the statute wouldn't cover expense payments that are structured to conceal the unlawful nature and source of the funds involved. That means that if an illegal gambling operator recorded the compensation that he paid his collectors as salary payments by a legitimate business that he owned, that uh, that would not be covered under the statute. Well, I but, mean, so what? Well, Congress was trying Is to there some rule up there that says uh, every criminal statute has to cover as much as possible? No, Your Honor, that's not what we're arguing. What uh, we're arguing is that uh, there's no reason that Congress wouldn't have, it wouldn't have covered these transactions and that they implicate the objectives of the statute as revealed by its text just as much as the transactions that are clearly covered. I think, it, I think it much more remarkable than that, more extraordinary than that, that Congress would want to make all, all betting operations like this uh, uh, a violation automatically of two criminal statutes. Well, Your Honor, it's, it's certainly I, I find that sort of, you It's know, certainly that true that illegal gambling and money laundering are frequently going to occur together. But that isn't a cause for concern. It just reflects the fact that certain businesses, certain illegal businesses, like gambling operations, like drug dealing, frequently generate large amounts of cash, and they need to launder that cash in order to survive and to it's prosper. It's hard to see this the, just in the, the sense of laundering. Nothing is being concealed. They're not the money that's being paid to the runners and the collectors. It's a ordinary and necessary expense of the illegal business. So I think Justice Scalia was emphasizing that this is um, for the very same conduct, two discrete statutes, one with much heavier penalties. That makes it odd, too, that the basic gambling statute has a lower penalty than this money laundering statute, and yet it's the same conduct that's violating both. Well, it's, it's not the same conduct in that uh, the, the conduct here, the paying the winners and uh, paying the collectors, is not a, a required element of, of the gambling offense. Oh, I, well, I mean, come on. There's, nobody, nobody runs a gambling operation without paying off the winners. It's, it's not going to last very long. It, it's and to, true. To make the paying off of the winners a separate crime from running the gambling operation seems to me quite extraordinary. It, it's, it's, it's true, Your Honor, um, that um, they're not going to uh, 
last very long. They're not going to survive. They're not going to grow. Um, that's because they uh, need to commit money laundering in different ways to do that. Can you tell me what happens if there's a, two bank robbers, one's in the getaway car, the other goes into the bank teller? And the, the robber that goes into the bank gets a thousand dollars and he comes out and gives five hundred to the getaway guy. Um, is, 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 is that a violation of the statute? That is if the, the, if the payment, um, would promote, uh, the continuing, if they're, if they've got a continuing, uh, robbery operation and, um, by paying him, he's going to say, he's saying, you know, keep on continuing in the operation and let's expand it further. The employee gets, who gets paid shows up for work the next morning. And so, of course, on your theory, it would be promotion. Uh, your Honor, uh, your question and a lot of the questions I'm getting, I think, express concern about treating these transactions um, as promotion. Um, under the statute, but the question I here, would have the same concern if we were dealing with concealment. Well, well I don't. Uh, if if the if the robbery takes place in a dark alley, uh, is that automatically concealment? No, because because what needs to be concealed, what there needs to be, is a financial transaction that's designed um, the transaction itself to conceal the nature and source of the proceeds. That's, but, that's but if going I can, into the alley, if instead I can of doing you, it out on the in the well, I, I don't think that that. that doing the robbery in the alley would be a, a financial transaction, would be designing a financial transaction to uh, to conceal the unlawful nature and source of the proceeds. Well, but if I can Mr. give Robert, you an example of that the, the problems that are being highlighted are problems that result from expansive interpretations of other concepts that are not before us. That's expansive that's, interpretation of promotion, expansive interpretation of concealment. The Seventh Circuit in, in the first appeal in this case, interpreted promotion very broadly, and then I guess it felt that it had boxed itself in, and that's what led to this interpretation of proceeds. But if you interpret those other concepts more narrowly, you don't have the same kind of overlap. I, I, I agree with that, Your Honor, and, and, I, and I was going to try to say to Justice Souter's question um, before, that if you have concerns that these kind of expense payments should not be treated as promotional money laundering. The way to address those is not by adopting a profits construction of proceeds, because that would do tremendous violence to the statute in, in other ways. Um, and I do think that there are. Well, uh, what about the qualification that Judge Easterbrook made that he said, at least where the crime is a business-like operation, he gave the example of gambling, he gave the example of selling contraband. And it seems to me that he was narrowing his definition of proceeds to cases where the crime is not robbery, a one-time event, but a business-like operation. Well, I think it's difficult to uh, interpret the, proceed, the term proceeds to mean something different for, um, for uh, business operations than for other uh, Crimes because it's the same word, but but Is even so, Your Honor, answer? there are other ways. Sorry. Why don't you continue? I'm sorry, I didn't know you weren't done. Okay, I'm sorry. Even so, there are there are other ways in which a uh, profits definition just makes no sense under the statute. Besides the numerous concealment transactions that would be excluded, that that Congress uh, would have uh, 
would have no reason not to cover. It also would make no sense as applied to professional money launderers. Those are people who are hiding um, money for criminals as a matter of their business, because they wouldn't be guilty of money laundering even if they knew that they were concealing money that was generated by a federal felony unless they also knew that the money was profits. I thought your answer to the line of questioning that we're having is that the problem would still be there even if you limited this statute to profits. You take the two bank robbers in Justice Kennedy's hypothetical, the one that robs the bank, the other in the getaway car. If before the, the, the robber gave the money to the person in the getaway car, he said, now, you know, I'm keeping uh, $100 because I had to buy the gun and that was $100, so you only get 400 so it's only the profits that they're splitting. You'd have the same problem. That, that's right. That's, that's, a, that's another point, uh, Your Honor, that a profits definition itself isn't going to solve the problem of um, where the underlying crime uh, and the money laundering. It'll, crime it'll solve a lot separate. of them, and unless you're willing to come in and say, yes, do it to us, give us a, narrow, a narrower definition of, uh, of, uh, of concealment and a narrower definition of what's a transaction, but you're not willing to do that. But it, it's, it's, it's you're you're really going to stretch that as broadly as you can. It's not going to it's, — it's not going — first of all, this case doesn't present the, the interpretation of promotion, and uh, the, the Court would be you free see, to, case to address that in another case. Maybe the question presented doesn't present yes. it, but the, the facts of the case do present it. So, it seems to me it's theoretically possible we could agree with you on the profits issue, but nevertheless say this doesn't fit the promotion. You, you certainly could, Your Honor, but that would not be a, a, an alternative ground that would be appropriate for you to rule uh, on in this case, because that um, issue was raised on direct appeal. It was decided against respondents by the, um, by the court on direct that, appeal. We could, still see, we, we could still do it if it's perfectly obvious that that's the right way to dispose of the case. You can, you can obviously address any, any issue that you want to, Your Honor, but the, the ordinary rule is that issues that have been decided on direct review shouldn't be relitigated on collateral attack. The issue wasn't addressed by either of the uh, courts below in these collateral proceedings. Wouldn't and, it be you know, we do submit that it was resolved uh, correctly um, in, this, in this case because, as the Seventh Circuit held and as all the other courts of appeals have held about promotion, um, the, the payments to the uh, winners and the payments to the collectors encouraged the continued participation of the collectors and encouraged the increased, um, increased participation by gamblers. But Mr. Rawis, the, the Seventh Circuit in this case was following a precedent in another case, and it thought that the defendant would prevail under its theory. If this Court should say that that theory, that it's profits and not gross receipts that matter, wouldn't it be appropriate for us, if we don't decide the question ourselves, to remand and say, Seventh Circuit, your precedent was wrong, but you could consider a question that was not necessary for you to reach because you had your precedent on the profits issue. You could do that, but but the the question that I think that uh, is concerning the court was resolved by the Seventh Circuit in this very case on on direct appeal. So uh, on direct appeal, the argument was made by Mr. Santos that these transactions uh, can't count as promotional money laundering because they're essential transactions of the, of the business and that they don't promote the carrying on of the business. And the Court of Appeals 
rejected those arguments. You, you might well reject it if you're going to have a, very, a, a narrow definition of, of proceeds. I mean, that re- rejection was, was connected with its, its acceptance of a, a narrow definition of proceeds. And if, if you're asking us to uh, obliterate the latter, uh, I don't know why it isn't reasonable to send it back to the Seventh Circuit and say, well, you still said the same thing if you came out differently on the proceeds question. Well, uh, we certainly would uh, prefer that you did that than that you interpreted uh, proceeds to mean profits because of the violence that it would do to the remainder of, of the statute, Your Honor. Um, I was talking about professional money launderers before and how um, they wouldn't uh, be guilty of money laundering if they were concealing money that they knew that was generated by a crime. And Congress, there's no reason that Congress would have considered those professional money launderers to be less culpable um, merely because they might be laundering only illicit receipts. And it would be very difficult for the government to prove that professional money launderers knew that they were laundering profits because they haven't participated in the predicate crime. I've got that point, but what is your suggestion? as to how to deal with what is underlying disturbing me, and it seems like a lot of others. If prima facie, Congress did not intend that you launder money where the activity is an essential part of the underlying crime itself. And there are three ways of dealing with that. One is this gross receipts method, which has the defects you mentioned. The second is a definition of promotion, which says when you promote a crime, that's different from engaging in the crime. And the third is sentencing, because it's a real offense sentencing method, and where what you've done is nothing more than the underlying crime, the sentence should be nothing more than the underlying crime. I see three ways to get to the same problem, and you're asking us to decide them piecemeal, yet they're related. What do I do? Well, I think you decide the question presented here, and you decide that proceeds means that, that proceeds means uh, gross receipts, because that's the only meaning that makes sense with the statute. But the sentencing point you make is a very, very good one, Your Honor. Um, and uh, the fact is uh, that uh, the sentencing guidelines um, were changed in 2001 to align the punishment for money laundering when people participate in the underlying crime much more with the punishment um, level for the underlying crime. Um, and, you know, in addition, as we know, the sentencing guidelines are advisory, and so courts could certainly mm-hmm. take into account um, concern about overlap. But I hear still your answer leaves me, and I have no answer to this. I want yours. I want you to see that I'm in, at risk here as a judge of getting whipsawed, that I, that I first decide this case for you, in the next case, all kinds of arguments appear that I hadn't thought of. And then the third case, again. But if I could have them somehow together, I could look at the least evil way or the most efficient way of achieving the congressional objective. Right. Well, um, I think that uh, you can't have all of them uh, together, Your Honor, unfortunately. But I, but I do think that, you know, we would say that out of the three that, that, uh, that you raised, the uh, best way to deal with concerns about this would be in the sentencing context. I find that extraordinary. You really come in and say, yeah, adopt two, two crimes. Uh, assume that Congress uh, meant uh, uh, ordinary gambling crime to, to carry with it this other extraordinarily high penalty for the same activity that involves the gambling, but don't worry about it. We'll, we'll even it out in the sentencing. 
I mean, that, well, it's, it's not, that's no way to run a it's railroad. Not, it's not, you know, it's just not exactly the same activity because people can commit gambling without commit money laundering. They can be guilty of illegal gambling without being guilty of money laundering. straighten that out in, in, in the definition of the crime but rather it, it than in, in, be, in even the, under this definition, Your Honor, in this very case, there were restaurant and tavern owners that permitted the gambling bets to be taken on their premises because it increased their, the patronage of their businesses. And they were uh, convicted of participating in the legal, illegal gambling operation. They didn't commit money laundering because they didn't engage in a financial transaction that's not an element of the gambling offense that involves the proceeds of the offense but and that ended either conceal the proceeds. Mr. Roberts, that the gambling offense is conducting a gambling business. So that makes it — it's not just the gambling itself. It's conducting it, it, it is. But the statute defines really what the three — a similarity between the statute the defines what the three elements of the gambling business business are, Your Honor, that it's illegal — gambling that's illegal under state law, that it involves five or more uh, persons, that it has — continues for more than 30 days or has more than $2,000 in gross revenues in a day. What continues? And, the business has to continue. And you're not engaged in a gambling business if you're not — if you're not paying off the winners, that's well, I think fraud. That the, that's, that's not a good, decent, honest gambling business. I think that <laughs> the gambling business, it might be gambling and fraud, Your Honor, um, but the gambling business can, can continue for more than 30 days well, without it, having paid the winners. If they had, a, you know, a lottery every month and it was at the end of the month, they hadn't paid the winners yet, it would have gone for the 30 days in a 31-day month without um, — Without, with, without um, having paid the winners. In a sense, if, the, if, if your definition of proceeds is problematic, it's something like an abstract uh, question you're asking us to answer. I mean, if this, if, if, if we say, well, we're not sure that this is proceeds, but if it is proceeds, it's defined as um, gross receipts, uh, that's an artificial context in which to address the issue. Yes, I think that, that uh, what they're asking you to do uh, is to interpret, and what the Seventh Circuit has done, is to interpret proceeds in a way that makes no sense for the statute um, in order to deal with these concerns about um, promotion cases um, that, uh, that can be dealt with in the other ways that, that Justice Breyer Mr. Uh, Roberts, is. And may really I may go back to something you said about of the options that Justice Breyer mentioned you said the way to handle it is in sentencing. Santos was sentenced to 60 months on the gambling counts and 210 months on the laundering. You said the statute has been changed. So what would be the sentence under the statute as it now exists? And this is vastly disproportionate, 60 months for gambling and 210 for money laundering would right i'm i'm sorry your honor uh, i i probably should know the answer to what the the precise range would be under the under the guidelines um now i don't but what i do know is before the way the guidelines worked um was that um the the base offense level for a, a money laundering crime was not tied to the offense level for the underlying offense so it was set i think uh, starting at 23 uh, for uh, promotional money laundering. Um, but what happened in, 19, in 2001 is that the, that the Commission changed the rules so that when, you, when, the, when the money laundering involves the uh, person has permit, participated in the underlying offense and has also done the money laundering, you start with the offense level for the underlying offense. 
and then you make some minor increases depending on the type and the well, I have of it in front laundry. of me, actually. I was looking at it, and it seems to me what it assumes is that the underlying offense is different from the money laundering. And do you have any rationale at all as to why this individual, if it's true, that he did nothing more that engage in the underlying offense, why should he receive one day more than 60 months? Well, because he does engage in something more than what he needs to do to be punished for the underlying offense, and that conduct is and, — and that conduct um, is uh, — promotes ongoing crime um, or can conceal uh, ongoing crime in ways that uh, that are just what Congress was getting at at the statute. And — and because gambling, uh, under, under the definition, has the three elements that do not include paying off the winners. Because — That's what it all rests Well, that's on. one thing. But the other thing is, Your Honor, if I could talk about the ways that the proceeds definition just doesn't make sense here. Um, if, if these expense payments, the expense payments, uh, for instance, the payments of the salary that, that Mr. Santos made to Mr. Diaz, it, it happens in this very case, although we didn't prosecute it as, as concealment money laundering, that he recorded those payments — as salary payments by a printing business that he owned. And he's doing that to conceal the, the uh, activity, to enable it to keep going. And that's just what Congress was trying to get at the statute. Wouldn't be covered under a profits definition. If criminals concealed the gross receipts temporarily until um, they pay the expenses, for instance, if a gambling operator takes the money um, that his illicit receipts from the gambling and he puts it in uh, the bank account of the printing business, and then later he uses it to pay the winning bettors. He's doing that to hide it so the gambling operation can keep going. That's what Congress was trying to get at here. That wouldn't be covered. That, that, that evades detection just as much as transactions that hide profits. But you're saying it would not be covered as money laundering, but nevertheless it would be illegal and be punished yes. as gambling. Yes, it would, Your Honor, but the, but the conduct, the concealment done conduct, as is, the concealment conduct is additional conduct, and it's what Congress wanted to get at here, and a, and a profits definition would, would mean that it's excluded from the statute. And it, and it would exclude the, the uh, professional well, you, money But you see, the, prob the problem we have is we're, we're not sure that it's within the statute. So then you're asking us to say how to make the statute work when we don't think the statute's applicable well, at all. Well, I, I guess if you don't think that concealing expense payment should be covered, that you don't think that concealing um, money that, that um, is well, — Can you imagine running an illegal gambling business and advertising your expenses? I mean, you're going to conceal It's not a question of advertising, That's part of what you do. It's not a question of advertising them, but it is a question of taking additional conduct to conceal them. But it's and not I, additional what? conduct. That's the point. It, it is additional conduct. He didn't need to record it on the books of the of, on the books of his printing business. What if he puts it in a tin can and buries it in the garden? Is that additional conduct? Of course it is. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's additional conduct, but it's not designed to conceal the unlawful nature and why, why isn't of, it? Why, do you do you put fund. your salary in tin cans in the garden? <laughs> Well, I might if I, you know, I might like to keep my money in the cookie jar, and it's perfectly legitimate money, Your Honor, because I don't want when someone comes into my house to, for, for, for them to steal the cash. I, do, I just but, don't see how you can make the distinction but, you're making, well, and therefore I don't see how you can avoid Justice Stevens's problem. If he takes the money, Your Honor, and, and he, um, he structures his payments to, to his uh, to his employees by making them, or, or to his suppliers by making them in $9,000 increments in order to evade uh, transaction reporting requirements. That wouldn't be covered either um, under, under this, 
interpretation of the statute. Well, Mr. Roberts, um, isn't it true that the Seventh Circuit's interpretation of proceeds doesn't really solve these problems except in the case of an unprofitable business? In the case of a profitable illegal enterprise, all of the same problems exist. I think that there are many uh, situations, uh, as uh, the Chief Justice pointed out, in which a profits definition isn't going to be enough to solve it. For instance, just a drug dealer um, accepts payment for the drugs. Uh, if, the, if that money exceeds the costs of the, of the business, it would presumably be profits. And without some other requirement in the statute, um, it would count as money laundering. And, for instance, when uh, street-level dealers that are employed by a drug, drug kingpin turn the receipts over uh, to, the, to the kingpin, even, you know, after they take out their share, let's say, um, under a profits definition, if those receipts exceeded the cost of the business, that would also be covered as money laundering. So I think it, it's, it's very true that uh, it, the profits defin- definition isn't going isn't to solve all the problems as well. That's, that's a, a, you know, another point about it. It also uh, means that when we have to prove profits, that that's going to be very difficult for us to do, even in cases that don't involve these expense payments, because criminals often don't keep accounting records. They certainly don't keep records that are accurate and complete and decipherable by law enforcement. And Congress recognized the lack of hard evidence of criminal profits. And for that reason, Congress provided for the forfeiture of proceeds rather than profits in the RICO and drug forfeiture statutes. And um, there's no reason to think that Congress took a different approach here in the money laundering statute two years later when it used the same term proceeds. There's also um, there's the issue of the uncertainty that would be created by a profits definition because it would, um, it would raise all these questions and there are no accounting rules to, to resolve them. And um, even the Court below acknowledged that it's difficult to determine what is and isn't net income and that the line between paying expenses and reinvesting net income is murky. And I don't think the Court should lightly assume that Congress intended uh, a definition of an element of the offense that's going to raise these numerous issues about the scope of that essential element of the offense, and the Court's going to have to resolve them all without any guidance from Congress. So if I could reserve uh, the remainder of my time for Thank the you, Counsel. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Vair. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, Justice Ginsburg, you've suggested uh, correctly that the only conduct in this case was the uh, payment of ordinary and necessary expenses of the business. Uh, Justice Scalia, you correctly uh, suggested that paying off winners is necessary to every gambling operation. Uh, Justice Breyer, you have correctly suggested that uh, and stated that the money laundering statute is intended to punish different conduct, different criminal activity than the underlying criminal activity. Didn't Justice Alito correctly suggest that these merger problems would still persist even under your definition of proceeds? Um, I think that that is not necessarily true. The merger problems um, would, would exist um, except for the profits definition certainly on the facts of these case, on this case. On this case, the, the only facts that were presented by the government, and they have conceded that they did not present any evidence of no, profit. I mean, if you have a profits definition and the enterprise has profits, all of these problems we've been talking about in terms of the merger, as I call it, between the money laundering and the underlying offense would still be there, right? Yes, Your Honor, there would. There would. And, in, in fact, Justice Alito also correctly suggested that the, the reason why the Shalaba panel decided 
the proceeds definition as profits was because of the expansive interpretation and application of the other aspects of the statute, and that they were left with essentially no choice. So why, why are you urging us to create two problems, to, to drag along <clears throat> all of the problems that you object to with, uh, with interpreting uh, proceeds to include uh, simply uh, covering your expenses? You, you acknowledge that the problems you point out would continue to exist if we accept your definition. On the other hand, I think you have to acknowledge that accepting your definition creates other problems of its own, such as the, uh, the, the difficulty in every case of, of, of showing that an illegal operation made a profit, such as the difficulty of deciding what kind of criteria you use for the uh, determining what are, the, what are the, the ordinary and necessary expenses of a criminal enterprise. Uh, why should we, why should we <coughs> choose to get, to get the worst of both worlds? Uh, I, I, and why isn't the proper way to attack the difficulty to uh, focus in on what constitutes a transaction and what constitutes concealment, something other than, uh, than the proceeds definition? I think you're absolutely correct, Justice Scalia. And, in fact, in our opposition to the petition for cert in this case, we made this very point as to why this was not the right case to determine all these these issues, in particular the burdens that, that have been presented by the government. Did you, did you argue at any point that, this, uh, that these were not proceeds? Yes, Your Honor, we did. Um, Justice Kennedy, in, in the, uh, the briefing in the opposition for cert and in our response brief, we have set forth distinct arguments that there are not separate transactions distinct <clears throat> and different from the, the underlying criminal activity. Did you argue that in the Court of Appeals? That was, that, was presented, um, as, that was presented as part of the Phoebus decision uh, as an argument that those transactions did not constitute distinct and separate transactions from gambling. Uh, that was uh, presented in the pro se petition and acknowledged by the government in responding to the pro se petition below. The government acknowledged that the, the question in Phoebus, um, the question in Shalaba, the question in this case on habeas are legally and factually indistinguishable. And I think Justice Stevens has suggested that all of this is inherent in the question presented. A fair it is fairly included because to look at the statutory context of the word proceeds is necessary for an intelligent resolution of the meaning of that word as well as how it plays throughout the rest of the statute. The question is, can, the question is, can you violate this statute by financial transactions which have you promoted the crime when those transactions are no more than part of the crime itself? That's basically the question, and I think Justice Kennedy is asking uh, if, in fact, we wanted to reach that question, is this a case in which we could do it through re-argument or in some other way? I, I think that um, that is a question that this Court could resolve on the facts of this case or in a different Was it case. raised in the Court below? It was, it was raised in the Court below as, as inherent in the — well, it was certainly raised in the Phoebus, in the direct appeal. It is inherent in the 2255 petition filed pro se by, by my client, Mr. Santos. It was acknowledged by the government that these issues are not legally or factually distinguishable. And, again, it's inherent in the question that's presented. It is a, the, the, the money laundering statute requires conducting a financial transaction involving the proceeds of specified unlawful activity 
with the intent to promote the carrying Well, I think it's a stretch so far as the question presented. The question presented is very clear whether or not it's gross receipts or net profits. That's, that's what we were asked to resolve. That's not your question presented. Absolutely not, Justice Ginsburg. It's not our question presented, but we do feel that even in answering that question, whether or not it is net or gross, does require looking at the term in context. And, and the context, we're not looking at a different I statute. Didn't, I didn't see that you presented a separate question presented in your opposition. Uh, we did, Your Honor. Maybe, where is that? In the, uh, not at, Mr. Chief Justice, in the, um, not at the, page I, I, not at page little i, which is what? In Mr. Santos's, uh, brief. And the question We're presented there was. Brief in opposition. Where, uh, in the brief of the opposition, uh, the very first page, I. Oh, but I'm looking at orange one, not the red one. The orange one is what we have before us when we decide whether or not to grant certiorari. And there you don't have a different question presented. No, we did not. In the, in the opposition to the cert petition, we did not present a different question presented as a question presented. But we did present the argument. Uh, Mr. Santos did and Mr. Diaz did, that there were no separate transactions that promoted the carry-on of the specified unlawful activity. Rather, all that the government had presented in this case was merely conducting the illegal gambling business. If we, if we adopt your position, we will have to decide a question like, for example, if the argument is I didn't have any profits because I had to pay $10,000 for a hitman to uh, uh, kill somebody, we would have to have a judicial decision that, yes, paying hitmen is the ordinary and necessary business expense in carrying out an illegal gambling operation. Right? Well, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, in any case, you're going to have to look at what the specified unlawful activity is in the context of a money laundering prosecution, because that is part of the context. And so in this case, you have to look at what is the ordinary conduct of an illegal gambling business. And I would suggest that paying off a hitman most likely would not fall into that category. But certainly, as, as many of the justices, including Justice Scalia and, and Justice Stevens and others, have suggested, that when a gambling business pays off its winners, that is inherent, that is integral to conducting a gambling business. It is well, not right, let's take two illegal gambling operations that are identical in every way, except that the one pays the runners, you know, uh, $200 a week, the other pays the runners $500 a week, and the one that pays 500 doesn't make any profits because he's paying too much to the runners. The, the first one, the more successful operation, you say, can be prosecuted for money laundering because it has profits. The other one doesn't. The incompetence is rewarded. No, Mr. Chief Justice, I would say that neither one could be prosecuted for money laundering because in, well, in one both situations, profits. well, in both situations, the, the, the gambling operator is simply paying off ordinary business expenses. Just the collectors who are part and parcel of running the illegal gambling business, they're one of the participants. And that is, that's a part of the illegal gambling statute is that you have to have five or more participants. Well, I'm focusing on the question presented that was the only question presented when we considered whether to grant certiorari by either of the parties. And that so focuses solely on the question of whether proceeds is consumes gross revenues or profits. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, what I'm what I believe uh, is the answer to your question is, is you cannot look at the term proceeds in isolation. And, and, and Justice Breyer, you know, suggested that 
the reason why we're even here today arguing about what I believe is just absurd and unwarranted results on the facts of this case is because that courts below and, and the government has, has proposed expansive interpretations. Courts below have adopted in some cases and not in others these expansive interpretations. Proceeds must mean the same thing in every money laundering case, doesn't it? And every money laundering case is not based on a gambling business. There are drug businesses and all sorts of other predicates. Well, I, Can it mean something different in depending on the underlying illegal activity? I, I think there is certainly a suggestion um, but that this Court itself has made recently in the Duke Energy case, that, that a term can have multiple meanings, multiple shades of meanings, and that will depend upon the context. So you have to look at the context and the, and the specified unlawful activity as context. Now, I'm not suggesting that we adopt a, a definition of proceeds as net profits in one case for one unlawful activity or gross profits for another unlawful activity or gross receipts for another one. But the problem that we have presented to us today is due to the piecemeal construction and application of this statute. And, and, and Justice Mr. Vare, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unwilling to uh, decide the, <clears throat> the definition of transaction question in the present case because, frankly, I think that's a, in itself a very difficult question, which we haven't had adequately argued. For example, <clears throat> while I believe, as I've indicated earlier, that paying off the winners is, is an essential part of a gambling operation. I don't believe that paying off runners necessarily is. You can have a, a gambling operation without runners, can't you? And you can so have you, it. You can, you can view that as something beyond the mere, the mere gambling crime. I, I, don't, I don't think you can view the paying off the winners as beyond the gambling crime, but I do think having a bunch of runners and paying off uh, each of them is, is not necessarily part of gambling. Well, you can have a, a gambling <coughs> business without runners, per se. Exactly. But you do need, Justice Scalia, you do need five or more participants. And the courts below have defined participants as, as <coughs> owners or uh, partners, bartenders, cocktail waitresses, uh, doormen, employees of the business. And if those are qualifying participants to even establish the, the the predicate for an, an illegal gambling business, then those participants are most likely going to get paid. And if they get paid, then that is simply part of conducting the illegal gambling business. But I think the fact, I mean, the fact of the, the runner in this case, the bet collector, Mr. Diaz, is, is probably, you know, illustrates best the unwarranted result in this case. Mr. Diaz did nothing more in this case than collect wages of about $150 a month or a week something along those lines, for simply collecting bets, and he was convicted of money laundering and sentenced to nine years in jail. Mr. Santos, my client, all he did was pay winners and pay those bet collectors to collect bets, and he, his sentence was nearly quadrupled. So someone who simply paid off whoever it is that ships in, uh, you know, a ton of heroin, uh, you'd say is not guilty then? Same thing. I mean, they're just paying off the people who engage in the activities that are necessary for the continuation and promotion of the illegal enterprise. Well, I, I think in, in that case, Mr. Chief Justice, I would, I would suggest it might be an incomplete hypothetical because simply paying the expenses of a crime or simply buying more drugs um, is not in and of itself, and I think the government has conceded that, 
in their opening, that's not in and of itself money laundering. There has to be a transaction that is conducted with the intent to promote the carrying on or separately a transaction that is designed to conceal the legitimate or the illegitimate source of, of the funds received. So simply receiving proceeds from an unlawful activity is not enough. And that's clear on the statutory language. You either have to have some promotion element or some concealment element. Well, if we go back to the question of the definition of proceeds, isn't it very unlikely that Congress would have wanted wanted to adopt uh, the the net income definition in light of the legal issues and the problems of proof that that would involve? Let's take the example of um, an international drug ring that has assets in a foreign country. They may have crops, they may have processing plants, warehouses, trucks, airplanes, etc. They ship millions of dollars of drugs into the United States. They get millions of dollars in gross revenue here every year. They hire a professional money launderer to launder the money here. Now the government wants to prosecute the money la- the, the person they hired plus members of the organization. The person they hired uh, may not know and may not care whether the money that was being laundered was profits or not. And how are you going to prove what, whether this enterprise was a profitable enterprise or not? Uh, they may have, I mean, they, have, they may have enormous gross revenue, but they may have, uh, they may have enormous expenses overseas. They may have bought a lot of warehouses and equipment. They may have lost a lot of things because they were raided by the government, destroyed the factory, kill, uh, dis, uh, killed the plants. It becomes an impossible situation. And, and why would Congress ever have adopted a definition like that? Well, Justice Alito, I don't think it's an impossible situation, number one, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But to address your first question, could Congress have intended this to mean profits, knowing that the burdens were so difficult? To answer that question, then you must look at what else Congress intended. And, and there's no question that Congress intended to punish different conduct than the underlying criminal activity. And and then you have to look at what Congress intended to get at when they wanted to fill the gap in criminal law, when they wanted to punish crimes that were not previously punished. They focused on getting at ill-gotten gains of criminal enterprises. They focused, and our briefs are, you know, set forth the, the statements that are replete through the debates on the floor that the Congress was focused on profits of criminal enterprises. Congress was not focused on the unprofitable criminal enterprise. Because well, like that, I'm sure that's true. They wouldn't be that worried about the unprofitable criminal enterprises because they wouldn't last very long. But there's the pro- there still is the problem of proof. Absolutely, just absolutely. And, and the proof well, problem — Just proving that it's profitable, proving — that the person laundering it knew that it was profits, because that's part of the definition of the crime, the, the, that, that scienter. And how can you prove that the fellow knew that it was profits? He would very rarely know whether it was or wasn't. So he, he skips off scot-free of a laundering crime. Well, Justice Scalia, the, the, the intent uh, or the knowledge or the scienter requirement is going to be present. It's going to be a burden on the government to prove no matter what the definition of proceeds is. But in terms of proving profits, the government is able to prove profits in other criminal financial 
transaction-type cases in a number of ways. They're not limited to a particular accounting method. They can choose the accounting method that they want. They're not limited to looking at day after day after day, week after week after week of, of financial records. They can aggregate records that are selected from particular points in time. Well, how do they even know in, even what the fiscal year of these enterprises is? I mean, let's suppose you have sunk costs. Somebody, they have to buy the poppy field wherever. But, you know, over three years, they're going to make a lot of money. You're saying you can't prosecute them in year two? No, I, I'm not saying that at all, Mr. Chief Justice. And I, and I think my point would be the government would not even need to look at a fiscal year uh, to prove profits. They would be able to look at a period of time and through their extensive search and seizure efforts. So my point is that the profits may not come in immediately, even though the underlying activity is exactly the same. That may be the case. They may have a difficult burden of proving profits in the early stages, but most of these prosecutions practically occur after a period of time. What's, what's the total stage you look at? Suppose it's profitable one month and not profitable the next month. And the loss the, the second month more than undoes the profits of the first month. Can you still prosecute them for the profits in the first month? Certainly based upon the profits in the first month. They're not limited to that. Right. I mean, one I, day they could pick that. They, they have one good day. And, 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 and they can, can prosecute on that one good day if there are the transactions involving the profits. What, what about the bank robber hyper? They're just one bank robbery. They spend $500 uh, to uh, each two people to, for their air, airfare and car rental. They rob the bank. They only get $800. So they've lost $200. They then give the $800 to the attorney to please or to somebody to please launder the money. No profits. I don't think that, that, that would be a very silly result. Well, I, I don't think that under that hypothetical, even the government would charge those criminals with money laundering. No, they give it to a third person to conceal it, $800. Well, if 8, there was $8 million, but it's simply giving money to somebody else does not meet the concealment and dis- disguisement element. I mean, you know, there has to be. There has to be an effort made to disguise the, the source of the income as being illegitimate. Well, As, assume that it's proceeds. Assume that they have a money launderer. Under your definition, there's still no violation. I suppose I would say no. And, and, and I'm going to explain why I have to say no, and I'm, I, I'm going to give you a mea culpa. The profits construction is not perfect. There's no question about that. But we're here today because it's the only way to resolve the case that came up to this court based upon the expansive interpretations of the rest of the money law. Well, that's — well, but we don't try to solve every case. We look at particular questions presented. And maybe there's going to be another case coming up in which the issue of how broadly you should construe promotion is or whether you should have a different definition when the offenses are merged or not. And we'll confront that when it gets here. It seems to me that your argument is is — Maybe your best argument, but your argument anyway, is let's avoid this question because of these other mistakes that have been made, mistakes which are not presented to us on the question that's, that, on which we granted cert. I think, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm not asking this Court to avoid any question. What I am saying is that there is a profits construction that if you apply the, the traditional rules of statutory construction, if you look at the text, the, the word itself, proceeds, does not have a single plain meaning as gross receipts. It is ambiguous, and it has multiple shades of meaning depending upon the context. If you look at the term proceeds in context, then, 
then it, it will depend upon how one is using. If I, if I were selling a house uh, and I asked somebody on the street what would be my proceeds from the sale of my house, in, that, in only that context, some would say it's the gross, some would say it's the net, and some would say it depends. Well, it depends upon what? It depends upon context. And that is included in the question presented. Well, let's, so let's take the, the, this context. There, there is, if you're going to go with profits, a question of what expenses. That's one of the difficulties of working with a net proceeds, because we don't know what are the expenses that you would deduct. I mean, the hitman was given as, as one example. You would say, no, not that one. But the salaries to the runners, yes. I mean, to, to figure out what would count to, to come up with, with a net figure, is, is, is it the least difficult, is it not? Well, I, Justice Ginsburg, I think that it is slightly more difficult than the case the government has now, which is really no difficulty at all. I think that, that it would depend upon uh, the unlawful activity, the specified unlawful activity. What would be the ordinary expenses associated with doing that crime? Uh, and lower courts are, are well-equipped and juries are well-equipped to hear evidence, direct and circumstantial, and make inferences and decide those issues. Why, on facts why does it have to be the ordinary expense of that? I mean, let's assume the, uh, the charge is murder, and I happen to use a hitman for the murder, and, and that's proven and uh, whatnot. Should, why, why? You mean uh, that, that isn't part of the, of, of, of the murder uh, conviction, simply because I could have done it without a hitman? I could have done it myself? No, I, I don't think so at all, Justice Scalia. And you, fact, you think paying the hitman would, would be part of the, of, of the murder transaction? Absolutely. Mm. And, but I don't think that that necessarily parlays into uh, whether or not it's money laundering or not. No, if, if, for example, the murderer paid the hitman uh, with money to kill somebody and then paid, uh, you know, used proceeds from the insurance premium that somebody might have been his wife or, or, or her husband and used the proceeds to pay off the money, the, the hitman for the next crime or, or to reward him or, or something else to promote the carrying on of the business or use the insurance proceeds to conceal where they came from, then I think you, you could create a hypothetical situation of money laundering. Well, oh, well, no, I thought it would depend on whether or not the insurance proceeds <coughs> exceeded how much he had to pay the hitman, right? Let's say he's not doing it to get the insurance money. It just so happens he had a $50,000 policy on the victim, and he, he had to pay 100000 like his wife, right? Yeah, he just wanted to, to, to commit the murder, not get the money. And so he pays the hitman 100000 he gets the 50000 and then uses it for all these other activities. You'd say no money laundering there because no profits. Well, if we assume the expansive interpretations of a transaction promoting the underlying crime that have been presented in this case, and, and then we apply the profits definition, that might not be money laundering. But the money laundering statute is not designed to, to cure that evil. That evil is punished and punished severely by the murder statute. It is punished as the underlying crime. And, and so in this case, Mr. Santos and Mr. Diaz, or Mr. Santos was punished up to the maximum of, of five years for running an illegal gambling business. 
He didn't do anything else other than run a gambling business. And so I think the point is, at the end of the day, there are certainly a lot of hypothetical situations that suggest a profits construction might pose some burdens, might not make sense. But if you're going to look at the burdens on the government in terms of construing the term proceeds, and then you also must look at the consequences of accepting the gross receipts construction. And I think at the outset, nearly every justice up here suggested, well, that turns every illegal gambling business into a money laundering violation. And the government has no answer to that. Under their interpretation as applied today, then every illegal gambling operator will be guilty of money laundering. I thought their answer was the money laundering statute covers a whole waterfront of activities besides illegal gambling. And the question is, what did Congress intend when they passed the money laundering statute? And you're sort of, this is kind of the, the, the tail wagging the dog. I mean, the tail is, well, it presents these problems when you're talking about gambling operations, but there is a whole rest of the dog area where it doesn't present a problem. Well, I think what the money laundering statute was intended to do was punish different conduct, separate and distinct from the underlying crime. And that different conduct is inherent in conducting a financial transaction with the intent to promote the carrying on of the unlawful activity. I, I, I do not think that you can parse the statutory language and only address the term proceeds irrespective of its consequences. In fact, I think the questions directed to, to me as to the the harsh consequences on the government of proving profits shows that you have to look at the term proceeds in its context. In its context includes not only the burdens on the one hand, but it certainly includes the situation we have here, that every illegal gambling business is automatic money laundering. And that is not what money laundering statute was enacted. It's not what it was, in, it was written or intended to address. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Vare. Uh, Mr. Roberts, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you. I could first address the reasons why this Court should not decide the separate transaction issue itself in this case. First of all, it's not the question presented here which is limited to the meaning of the statutory term proceeds. Respondents didn't present any alternative question presented in their briefs in opposition, and in fact, they don't present an alternative question presented even in their uh, briefs on the merits. They're just using the concern about merger as a reason to decide uh, that proceeds means profits. The separate transaction issue was decided against respondents adversely on direct appeal in the Phoebus case as uh, my brother on the other side uh, acknowledged. And those kinds of issues that are decided adversely on, on direct appeal shouldn't be relitigated. The issue wasn't raised in the section, the separate transaction issue wasn't raised in the section 2255 issues, and it wasn't addressed by the courts um, below in these collateral proceedings. Uh, at, at most, we'd say it should be left open for another case that presents, uh, that presents the issue. Um, at, at, beyond that, if this Court thought that, uh, that something should be left open for the, the uh, Court below uh, to address, the Court below could address a, a range of possible ways to deal with uh, ensuring a separation. For example, Justice Stevens' suggestion that uh, an illegal gambling business uh, under the statute itself entails um, that uh, payment of winners and the uh, payment of uh, employees, although we don't think that it does. But a profits definition 
is not the way to address concerns about overlap with the underlying offense because it makes no sense in the broader context of the statute. It would create significant uncertainty about the scope of the statute because of the absence of accounting rules. It would make proof very difficult in, as a general matter because of the absence of those rules and because criminals often don't keep accounting records. It would exclude numerous concealment transactions that Congress had no reason not to cover, and it would cripple the government's ability to prosecute professional money launders, which are really a significant uh, part of the problem that Congress was addressing. If the Court has no further questions, uh, we would ask that the judgment of the Court of Appeals be reversed. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.